This morning, our message is titled, Singleness in View of Eternity. Okay, and we're going to have a question that's going to kind of guide our thinking throughout, and that is, where or in what or in whom is your identity found? Okay, but that's the question that will guide our thinking. But first, we'll back up a little bit, talk about what we've, the two messages um, for the last two weeks. Um, so two weeks ago, Jimmy addressed the ladies, Jess talked about that a little bit. Um, he, he spoke about the responsibility to be women of God who love their husbands, who focus on their family, who choose not to gossip, and who seek to live out the fruit of the Spirit, all for the sake of honoring God and His Word. And then last week, we heard about our responsibility as, as children to honor our parents, whether we're young or whether we're old and whether they are old. Um, along with how as parents, we are not to provoke our children to anger, but instead we are to seek to love them by bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, by teaching them to be diligent and humble, loving and gracious, and how we are to give them practical, loving advice, even as we go throughout the spontaneous moments of the day. So that was the last two weeks. So now this brings us to our, our third message in this series. And this one is for those of us who are single. And for the sake of clarity, I'm going to define singleness as not married. Okay, so if that's you, you're not married, then you're single for this talk. Um, but I also feel the necessity of, of clearing up my intention for this talk before we go any further, because I think that many of you married folks may be thinking, you know, that's, that's nice, I get a week off. Jimmy gave the single guy a chance to talk to all the single people about the single stuff. Well, this is geared towards singles, but I strongly believe that there are things that the Lord will use to bless and encourage all of us throughout this talk, whether you're single or married. Um, on this topic of singleness, however, I recognize that while I am not yet married, there are many cases of singleness that are very different from my own, and some of which that I have no practical experience in, no no, I won't even pretend that, I'll, that I understand the situation that some of you are in in singleness. There are, there are eight-year-old singles and there are 78-year-old singles. You know, there are, and those of us everywhere in between. Uh, there are those of you who have been divorced, who are now possibly single parents. There are those of you who have experienced the death of your spouse, and, and you're looking at singleness now in a totally different outlook. Um, but if I or if anyone were to speak to you from this position as coming only with my personal opinion, my personal experience, then I think that we would all be wasting our time. There's a story I once heard about a famous lecturer who traveled all around the country giving his talk. He went from town to town giving his talk over and over. And he had a driver who was always with him. And his driver had heard his talk so many times that he told the lecturer one time, you know what, I have heard your talk so many times that you don't even need to give it anymore. I could give it for you. So the lecturer says, okay, fine, you can give it tonight. So they get to their venue. The driver goes up on stage. He gives the lecture flawlessly. He does it exactly like he's heard it so many times before. And he gets to the end. He does such a good job that the crowd stands up and gives him a standing ovation, thinking the whole time that he's the lecturer. So they give him a standing ovation, they sit down, and there's a question and answer time afterwards. 
have the first question comes up. It's a tough question. It's, it's a really hard one. They ask it to the driver, and he says, he steps back with a big smile on his face and says, you know what? That question's so easy, I'm going to let my driver answer it. <laughs> well, that's a little bit how I feel standing before you in this position now. I know that there are many of you who have much more wisdom of life and in life than I do. However, my goal through this talk is to be faithful to the Word of God and to speak the truth as I have understood it and to speak the wisdom that I've received from Scripture and other wiser people. Um, And much of my material I owe to the work of John Piper and David Platt. Um, So just note that. One other thing before we start, um, to note the last and only other time that I preached, I went for a solid hour and a half. So this morning we're going to see if we can make it two for two. But with our overarching question in mind of where or in what, or in whom is your identity, I want to give you my main point right from the beginning and then seek to expound upon that using scripture and some challenges for all of us from those scriptures. So instead of seeing our identity as aligned with maybe where we're from, or maybe what we do or what we have, or maybe who we're married to, or in my case, who I'm not married to, instead of finding our identity in that, here's my main point. That if you are a believer in Christ, a follower of Jesus, whether you are single or married, then your main, your greatest, your deepest identity should be found in Christ alone as his bride, as the church. Okay? And there are two main ways that I've broken into several side points that I will seek to show you how finding your identity in Christ as his bride will, by God's grace, give you a clearer view of of how to live as a single person and and hopefully also how to live as a married person in view of eternity. Okay, so here's my outline if you're taking notes. There's nothing on the screen for it, but just here's the outline. In view of the present age, whether you are single or married, man or woman, your identity in Christ means that you should live your life in light of the last days, in light of the last days. And then point two, In view of the present age, whether you are single or married, man or woman, your identity in Christ means that you should have contentment in whatever circumstance God has placed you. And also note that we are going to be talking about marriage more specifically in a couple weeks, um, but I will address some things with, as far as concerning married people in this, so so you do well to pay attention. Um, But let's, let's pray right now and go before the Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit just for coming here now, being among us, Lord. Lord, truly, let these words that I'm about to speak be from you, God. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our eyes to understand the truth. Lord, let my words be truth, God, from your word. Lord, if there's anything that I, I speak falsely, I pray that you would correct it and that you would, that you would throw it out from, from the hearing, Lord. But God, I pray that I would be faithful to your word now and that we would all have ears to hear, hearts to understand, Lord, and that we would be able to apply this, Lord, into our lives. So I just thank you for this, this amazing opportunity, Lord God. I bless your name in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in all of this, I'm addressing you who are a follower of Jesus, all right? I'm addressing you who is one who has trusted your life into the deity, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus alone for, your forgive, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and who is seeking to live your life for his glory. And if that doesn't describe you, then I hope that you will encounter him as glorious and worth following by your time with us this morning. Um, But in the meantime, I encourage you to listen and to do your best to track with us. So we're going to be in a couple different passages this morning. There are some Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, I encourage you to get one. You can take it home and keep it if you want, underline in it. I would encourage you to do that. But point one, in view of the present age, whether you are single or married, man or woman, your identity in Christ means that you should live your life in light of the last days by realizing that your body is intended for sexual purity. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. So 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So the end of all things is at hand here. Now, what in the world could that mean if Peter is writing this 2,000 years ago and we're all still here? The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So for the sake of my prayers, I need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. What does that look like? Well, what I want us to see right here from the outset is that Peter's view of life is that he is living in the final days right where he is. So he realizes that the Messiah has come and brought with him the end of the age, So that with the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus back to heaven, Peter realizes that all the major events in God's plan of salvation have taken place. Therefore, Christ's return was at hand and could happen any moment. But here's where it applies to what we're talking about. He warns his readers upon having the realization that Christ's return could happen at any time, He warns them against simply just lying around and looking into heaven and just waiting for the return of Jesus. He's saying, instead of just lying around waiting, you need to have a life, striving to have a life that is alert and soaked in Christ-exalting prayer. Church, we all know what happens when we lie around simply waiting for something to happen and not seeking the Lord in prayer. We become idle. We start walking towards things that we shouldn't. We indulge in things that we would not do if we were alertly keeping watch in prayer. And this, this is where Peter's warning makes perfect sense and where we need to understand that we too now are living in the final days and that we too would do well to listen to and heed what Peter is saying here. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. We are in the final days now, awaiting the return of our king, and we must be self-controlled. But what does that look like? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. We're going to be back and forth between those passages, so keep a marker there. But let's look at what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, the second half of 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee, therefore, from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, church, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So what it means to be self-controlled, it means that our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality. Men and women, single and married, in view of our identity being in the bride of Christ, and since we are living in the final days, be self-controlled by fleeing sexual immorality. Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the living God? Your body is not your own. We know that God has designed the beauty of sex for the marriage covenant alone, between a man and a woman alone. And he designed it from the beginning as a means of bringing glory and as a means of procreation, a way to populate the earth. So all throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's design for sexual expression is that it takes place within marriage. Yet we take what we've been given We have this perfect expression of the sexual expression in marriage. Yet we take what we've been giving, forgetting that we, the church, are the bride of God. And we profane our bodies time after time, thinking that our view of sexual expression is going to be better than God's view. Brothers and sisters, singles and marrieds, marrieds, flee from sexual immorality. Don't click. Don't touch, don't think, don't go. For every other sin that a person commits is outside of his body. But the sexual sin, the sexually immoral sin, is hurting your own body. So as a member of the body of Christ, when you indulge in sexual activities, whether in thought or action, the things that go against God's design, you are hurting the rest of your church body whether it's something that the rest of us know about or not, it's causing you guilt and shame and barriers that will hurt the way you relate to the rest of us. So, my application for that. Brothers and sisters, I am not speaking to you as one who has conquered this, who is above you in this, but as one who sees that love covers a multitude of sins and one who by the grace of God has received mercy. By grace upon grace flowed down through the precious blood of Christ. Now you may say to me, John, I try. You don't understand. There's just no way out when I'm being tempted. Jesus says, I am the way. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But you may say, when the lies of the enemy come crashing into my eyes and my mind and my body, there's just nothing I can do. I am the truth, Jesus says. Or you may say, but in the moments when it's dark and I just 
can't find the light to escape to, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. John 8, 12. So I call you to this as one who is also daily dependent on the grace of Christ. For we, Christ's bride, were bought with a price. Therefore, in view of the present age, let us honor God with our bodies by running to sexual purity. That's point 1A. Point 1B. In view of the present age, whether you are single or married, man or woman, your identity in Christ means that you should live your life in light of the last days by loving the body, the church, through showing hospitality to one another. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Love is the key thing we're going to see here. But I want to point out that as the end draws near, we see all the more the pressures that the world puts on us as singles. The pressures to live the way the world says we should, maybe possibly extending our adolescent years into our 20s, maybe our 30s, and hopefully not further. But thinking that since we haven't yet found the one for us, that we have the right to, to wallow in our singleness, dallying in things other than what truly matter in life, namely building the kingdom of God? No. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love one another. So what do I mean by we should love one another? Since I know that we don't all go around hating one another, what does it mean that we should love one another? I think it means that we should bear one another's burdens. When we've sinned against each other, maybe when someone has spoken angrily to you, or when something, someone has not done something that they were supposed to do for you, or maybe not included you into something that you feel like you should have been included in to, we are to cover the other person's sins by loving them in Jesus' name. Okay, so how do we love them in Jesus' name, if that's the call? Well, look at the next verse. Verse 9 gives us at least one way to show love to one another. It says that we are to show hospitality without grumbling. And as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we're to love one another by, as good stewards of God's varied grace by showing hospitality to one another. Now here, I'm encouraged this morning because I know that there are many of you in our church body who are already doing this. Many of you married people are already reaching out to us singles. And some of you singles are already reaching out to married people. But for those of us who have not yet jumped on to this and realized that this great command, we would do well to listen. Peter says that just as we're getting to the last days, when the reasons for grumbling seem to be more than ever, we are to love one another by graciously opening up our lives to each other. And this is something that's not only good for us as fellow members of the body of Christ— But remember back to Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. He said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if we want to love one another and we want other people on the outside to see our love, see Christ and his love, 
We are to love one another. So we singles, we should be reaching out to other singles. Okay, not a novel idea. You should reach out to other singles. But you also, this one might be a little bit more odd in your thinking, but singles, you should be reaching out to married couples. Okay? In any way that you can. And what a wonderful way for us to show that we truly are mature members of the body by sharing our lives with those who are married. And you married people love other married couples, of course, but reach out to us singles. <laughs> Plan your hospitality to include the single people around you. Okay, so I'm not just trying to get an invitation to lunch here, although I do like to eat lunch. But in seriousness, whether it be for Sunday dinners or picnics or holiday celebrations, you know, tomorrow's Memorial Day, you having a cookout, married people, invite a single person over. Single person, if your family's having a cookout, invite a married couple over. Okay? A younger person, single person, I understand that you may not be in a position where you have necessarily have your own home and you, it may not necessarily be easy for you to just invite somebody over, a single person over, much less a married couple over to your house to spend for dinner and to spend time together. And I understand that. Go out to eat with them. Go spend the day at Chip Oaks with them in some form. Spend the time with them. Get to know them. Invest your life into them. Or you older singles who have your own homes or apartments, you may be thinking, well, my home or my apartment just isn't big enough to have people over. Or it isn't nice enough. Or you might be saying to yourself, you know what, I don't even have a personality. I'm not outgoing like so many people in this church. People probably don't want to hang out with me anyway. If you're worried about whether you're going to be outgoing or not, whether you're going to be able to open your life up to someone. Let me paraphrase, paraphrase this quote by John Piper. It speaks to this well. When you feel that way about having people into your lives, then it probably means that you won't intimidate anyone. We're all uneasy and shy when it comes to going over to someone else's house or opening up our lives to them. We're all wondering whether we'll wear the right thing or whether we'll say the right thing or whether we'll eat too much. (laughs) Friends and family, we are all in this together. We're all the body going after this together. But showing hospitality doesn't have to mean just dining with each other in some form. Another way to show hospitality is to serve the body. And you can serve the body by taking care of things here at the church building. So when I think about this, he may not like me sharing this, um, but when I think about an example of a single person serving the rest of the church body, I think about one beautiful example of a single man who comes here at 7 p.m. on a Saturday night to clean up coffee stains that the rest of us have put down on the floor without any of you ever knowing about it. When I think of showing hospitality as a single person, I think of Lou Jones. We are to show hospitality to one another because we are all of the same body, the bride of Christ. And as one body, we want to take care of ourselves. And why do we open up our hearts to the rest of the body? Because God opened up his heart to us. After all, what is love? 1 John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, single person, married person, you want to know what true love is? By this, we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. 
we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we know love and we show love because we have been shown so great a love by our groom, Christ. So in light of the final days, love one another by showing hospitality to one another. So that's point one in two forms. Here's point two. In view of the present age, whether you are single or married, man or woman, your identity in Christ means that you can have contentment and confidence in whatever life circumstance God has placed you. So turn back over to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to jump down to chapter 7, verse 6, and we're going to read a lot of verses here, but do well just to pay attention and follow along with me. Starting in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now jump down to verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at his time, at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call circumcised, uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is freed when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. We just heard that a minute ago. Do not become servants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Now, continuing on in 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Meaning he's not going to be quoting Jesus here, he's just, but he still sees himself as being one trustworthy to give commandments for God. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord." If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So this is where I wanted to get to right here. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. There's a lot in that. There's a lot in that that we just read, but we're going to seek to draw just a couple of things from that. And the first thing is this. That both singleness and marriage are equally good. So if we go back to 1 Peter 4.10 where it says, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. When we go back to that, we start to make a connection between what Peter is thinking and what Paul is thinking. As we have all been given gifts from the Lord, and in our case we're talking about the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage, we would do rightly to view them both as good and perfect gifts from above, given to us from God. And as stewards of God's varied grace, we are to make the best use of our time in the life circumstances that we are in, realizing that we have been given by God, if it truly is a gift, as he says it is, we have been given a good gift. And that in that gift, we breathe in his grace and we breathe out his praise. So that's the first thing. Whether you're single or married, it's good. But the second thing I want us to see here is just how bizarre the statement from Paul that both singleness and marriage are equally good is if we look at it from the viewpoint that God only blesses and multiplies his people through means of physical offspring. Okay, but in order to see what I want us to see here, we're going to have to go back to where we were a little bit ago this morning, looking at how God originally created the expression of sexuality. So if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God gives a commandment to men and women to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham, where he says that, Through physical procreation, Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then in Genesis 26, God reaffirms that promise that he gave to Abraham, but this time to Isaac, saying that he would bless him, and that he would establish his name by giving him physical offspring. So what we begin to see is a picture here in the Old Testament that you are blessed by God if you have physical descendants, and you're cursed if you do not. So we jump forward to Deuteronomy 25. We see that it says that your name would be blotted out of Israel if you had no children. Then 1 Samuel 24, we see Saul begging David not to cut off his offspring, but to allow his name to be continued. So we begin to see continued throughout the Old Testament that God is using a means of physical procreation to build and to bless his covenant people. And that therefore means that marriage and the ability to have physical offspring is extremely important to the preservation of God's covenant people. So that's where we get to, we begin to see that what Paul is saying is actually right on point when we look at God's heart for his new covenant people. If we turn to Isaiah 53, we come to an extremely familiar passage where Isaiah is prophesying the Messiah who would suffer for the sins of his people. And this, this is where we truly begin to see the glory and the wonder of our God. So in Isaiah 53, talking about the one who has borne our sorrows, who has pierced for our transgressions, 
the Messiah, Jesus, lest you miss who we're talking about here. We get to verse 8, and now we begin to see a shift from God blessing his people through the means of physical procreation to God now instituting this method of blessing his people through spiritual regeneration. Okay, so starting in verse 8, Isaiah 53, verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. This Messiah we're talking about. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Don't miss this, church. This is huge. Okay, this is the Messiah, the prophesied one, the one through whom God's blessings would come to his people, this prophesied one. He's being oppressed and judged. Who can speak of his descendants? He's cut off from the land of the living. This one through whom God's promises are coming is cut off. So if we're looking at this only in the way of how God blesses people through physical procreation, we are in serious trouble if we get to the Messiah and he is cut off from the land of the living. Go to verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So it's no wonder then, when we get to chapter 54, verse 1, where we see that it says, Sing, O barren one, you who did not bear, break forth in the singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So track with me here. We're going to go to one more place. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. We see that here Isaiah is addressing eunuchs, those who have had their physical, sexual capacity taken from them physically. And just for a bit of context on the idea of eunuchs, we can look forward to Jesus' words in Matthew 19, where he says that some men are eunuchs from birth, meaning they have physical defects of some sort, or some have been made so by men for the sake of devotion to their masters or in the context of working. He says, but some have chosen that way for the sake of the kingdom of God, i.e., those who are single. But, but don't lose where we are here. We're talking about the Messiah, the Messiah who had no physical descendants, a eunuch, if you would, not physically, but one who's chosen the life of celibacy, devoted to the Lord. He's cut off with no physical descendants. Yet, when he makes his offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and that is where we get to when we come to Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose to do the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Church, take hold of this and soak in this truth that though Jesus was cut off from the land of the living, though he had no physical descendants, when he paid for our sins by dying on the cross and then raising back to life, 
he will see his descendants and count them righteous. So what that means is for all of us who have trusted, for all of you who will trust your life into his life, he will give you a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I can't go through this and, and not think of those couples in our church body, I'm thinking of some specifically, who have no physical descendants. O oh, you who have no physical offspring, say not, I am a dry tree. For your investment here in the church body, realizing that you are in the last days, you have a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. Sing and rejoice in that truth, for your descendants are more than that of her who has borne many. For all of us who are single, take heart. Realize that whether or not you ever get married, if you are a follower of Jesus, your identity is married to him as his bride, men and women. And you have a monument and a name that is better than that of marriage and physical descendants. Take comfort in that truth. Rejoice and be content in the gift that the Lord has given you. To quote David Platt, he says, that's the beauty of the whole gospel, all that we've been talking about. He says, that's the beauty of the whole gospel, that singleness is not a curse, but is grace. That in singleness or marriage, these are gifts given by God for enjoyment that leave us no need to worry or fear, always looking to how the grass is greener on the other side. Instead, we need simply to focus on how we can best steward the gift that God has given us at that moment. Stewards of God's varied grace. So I say to you, church, brothers and sisters, single and married, in view of it being the last days, in view of your identity being in Christ, it means that your body is meant for sexual purity. Your identity in Christ means that you should love the church by showing hospitality to one another. And your identity to Christ means that you can have complete contentment, comfort, and confidence in whatever life circumstance God has placed you. Because in Christ you have a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. So to each one I say to you, is your identity found in Christ? Are you his bride? If you are <laughs> single and married, oh, the joy that you have now here in the last days. And oh, the everlasting joy that will be yours for all of eternity with your groom. But if this term has been bothering you, this term of the bride of God, you don't quite understand what I mean when I've been, why I've used it so much, I'd love to talk to you afterwards about, about that. But my hope is that you, that every single one of you who are, who are hearing my voice would find your ultimate, your greatest, your deepest identity in Christ alone. And that you would allow that identity to govern every other aspect of your life. So pray with me now. Oh, holy God, you who have given us life, Lord, that when we trust our life into you, we have eternal life. We have, we invest into your kingdom. We have descendants 
greater than those of physical descendants, God. I thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for giving us ears to hear, hearts to understand this, Lord, and to apply it to our lives, God. You are good and you are glorious, and we worship you in all of this, Father God. Again, Lord, I pray that this would be truth, Lord, that everyone hears. Remove any falsehood that was spoken, Lord God, to your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So, blessed are all you who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us 